It's time to discover your spiritual identity with your host, Mike Shree. There are hundreds of names and titles given to God's people that powerfully reveal who you are, why you exist, and what your purpose is in this world. Each one pulls back the veil of a different aspect of who you are in Christ. Once you learn these names and titles and apply them to your life, you will rise up boldly to be all that God has called you to be. Are you ready? Here's Mike Shree. Let's begin with Romans 8.33. Paul makes a powerful proclamation in the form of a question. He says, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Now, of course, that verse contains a name for God's people. There are hundreds of names and titles that reveal who we are and what our inheritance is in Christ. And this is one of the more powerful names applied to the people of God. What does the word elect mean? And why does God call us his elect? Well, let's go back to the original languages. That will help us as we learn the revelation behind this name, this title given to the people of God. It occurs in the Bible 24 times. And also the related word election occurs six times. In the Old Testament, it comes from the Hebrew word bokir. That's B-A-C-H-I-Y-R, which is translated elect four times and chosen eight times and the word choose one time. Then in the New Testament, it comes from the Greek word eklektos. That's E-K-L-E-K-T-O-S, eklektos. And it's translated elect 12 times, elects, that's apostrophe S, three times, and chosen six times. So we see that the words elect and chosen are interchangeable. In fact, uh, let me quote another verse that shows that very clearly when you reference two different versions of the Bible. In the New King James Version, Matthew 24, verse 31, talks about the end of the age. And it says that God will send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. And then in the complete Jewish Bible, it says he will send out his angels with a great shofar, and they will gather together his chosen people from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. So in the New King James Version, we are called his elect. In the complete Jewish Bible, we are referred to as his chosen people. And so again, let me emphasize these two terms are synonymous. To be elected by God is to be chosen by God. To be among the electors, to be among the chosen. Now let's go into the specific usage of the word elect in some choice scriptures. That word appears twice in the Bible in reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. One time in the Old Testament and one time in the New Testament. In Isaiah 42 verse 1, God said, Behold my servant whom I uphold my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Jesus is referred to as God's elect one. 
chosen for a task, and that was the task of bearing the sin of humanity when he was crucified on the cross and rising out of the rubble of the curse when he rose from the dead in order to liberate us all. And because he was God's chosen, he was graced to conquer every adversary that he faced in life, including death itself. He hit every one of those opposing things that should have and could have destroyed him and went through it victoriously because he was graced to overcome every challenge and to fulfill every purpose he was elected to accomplish. And if that's the truth for Jesus, if death could not hold him, if hell could not overcome him, if the grave could not overwhelm him, then no matter what you face, if you are the elect of God as well, every adversarial thing you face in life, you will subdue by the grace of God. Now, the word elect is used one time in reference to the faithful angels that did not rebel against God in the beginning. 1 Timothy 5.21 Paul writes his pastor protege, Timothy, and says, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. Who are the elect angels? Well, certainly they are the ones who were faithful to God in the uprising when Satan rose up against God in the beginning, described in Isaiah 14 verses 12 through 19 and Ezekiel 28 verses 12 through 19. Well, were they chosen before the rebellion and graced to be faithful, or were they chosen after the rebellion because of their commitment to faithfulness? Well, that is a question that I'll need to answer later as we unravel the meaning of this word and its associated doctrine. Now, in the Old Testament, you find the word elect applied several times to Israel. The primary time is Isaiah 45, verse 4. And this verse concerns the king of Persia that was yet to come. Years in advance, Isaiah prophesied that Cyrus would be the king of Persia. And listen to what he said. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. In other words, Cyrus did not have a personal relationship with God, but he was an integral part of God's plan, and God used him to release the Jewish people from Babylonian bondage and restore them to their homeland to build the temple and to raise it up and restore it, not only to its former glory, but to greater glory. So God can use people that are not necessarily in a covenant relationship with him. So we don't need to prejudge whether or not someone can be beneficial to the advance of the church, just because they may or may not be committed Christians themselves. God has his way of doing things, and we need to just step back and let God be God. In the entirety of the Bible, you find God's New Covenant people referenced 16 times. Now, a couple of those scriptures can be applied to Israel also, 
but 16 times we are referred to as God's elect. Let me go back to our original scripture. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. In other words, God has a chosen people and he has predetermined to do whatever is necessary to legally acquit you of all guilt just as if you never sinned, to exonerate you, to vindicate you, to champion your rights before his throne, to approach the Father boldly. And the Bible goes on to say in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6, that not only have we been chosen, but we have been chosen in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. That's absolutely a miracle because we deserve blame for the errors that have been in our lives. But God's passion is to present us without blame before him in love, having predestined us to the adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. It's not to our praise, it's to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the blood. And the word beloved there has a capital B. It's a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Christ, we are just as accepted in the presence of the Father as the firstborn son. What a marvelous thing, because we are God's elect. No wonder in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10, Paul said, Therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. In other words, Paul was saying, in essence, not everyone's going to listen to me, but I'm going to find some diamonds in the rough. I'm going to find some jewels. I'm going to endure the persecution, the rejection, the want, the times of destitution, the times of homelessness. I'm going to go through all of that because I know there'll be thousands that will reject me, but there will be those chosen of God who will receive what I have to say. See, even God encouraged him this way. In Acts chapter 18, verse 10, God spoke to Paul and said, for I am with you and no one will attack you to hurt you for I have many people in this city. See, he was telling Paul in advance that there was a large group of people yet to be converted that he was ordained to reach. It was all part of a plan, a divine election from the foundation of the world. So Paul was saying, I can endure. I can put up with the pain. I can put up with the difficult situations that I face because I know a plan is unfolding in me that will not be fruitless fruit will be born according to the purpose of God. Now, when you start really deciphering this mystery of divine election, you have to see the two extremes that doctrinally it's been taken to in years past. The two opposing interpretations are Calvinism and Arminianism. Calvinism holds that the election of individuals to salvation is absolute and unconditional 
by virtue of an eternal divine decree. In other words, you don't have anything to do with it. God chose you before you got here. He will manifest himself to you. Whether you qualify for it or not, it's unconditional, and it's according to a divine decree. Now, this viewpoint is named after John Calvin, who was one of its most famous proponents, who lived from 1509 to 1564. On the opposite end of the pole is Arminianism. Arminianism regards election, divine election, as conditional upon repentance and faith. The decree of God is that all who truly repent of their sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. But every responsible person determines for himself whether or not he will repent and believe. Sufficient grace is bestowed upon everyone to make the right decision. Now, that doctrine or that interpretation of the doctrine of divine election is named after Arminius, a Dutch theologian who lived about the same time that John Calvin did, from 1506 to 1609. Which one is right? Is it dependent upon God solely, or is it dependent upon us solely? Well, I heard a country fellow one time define divine election in a kind of humorous way. And forgive me if I try and put on the slang sound of a country talker. But he said, my definition of divine election is this. God votes for you and the devil votes again you and your vote breaks the tie. Hallelujah. Well, there's kind of a lot of truth in that. God votes for you the devil votes against you, and your vote breaks the tie. So that shows God's involvement and your involvement. There is a marriage between the two. See, divine election can be compared to an architect's blueprint plan. There's a plan in place, but it's up to the builders to conform what they do to the original architectural drawing. And God has a plan in place for our lives, but the element of obedience has to be there too. We must act by faith on what God says we are to do and go after it. If we were just robotically programmed to do it, there would be no value in it and certainly no reward to it. There's got to be a willful element. And yet we're not just in this winging it on our own. There is a marriage between the two extremes. If strict Calvinism was true, then the 30, 60, and 100-fold parable isn't really possible. Where the seed is planted in the ground, in what is termed good ground by the Lord Jesus Christ, Matthew chapter 13, and some bring forth 30-fold, some bring forth 60-fold, some bring forth 100-fold. Well, if it's all the predetermination of God, unconditionally, then no one's going to bring forth 30-fold. Everyone would bring forth 100-fold. So again, there's got to be some input from us, and yet God is the one who provides the seed that brings forth the potential growth. It's a marriage between the two. Now, if strict Arminianism is true, Jesus never would have said things like John 6, verse 44, where he declared no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up 
at the last day. Could it be that both views are true and that truth is really found in a balance between the two extremes? Let me give you a parable of the human body that will help us see the interpretation of this spiritual condition. No one can just decide what eye color they're going to have. You can dream all day long, I wish I had brown eyes. But if you have green eyes, then it was part of the genetic code in the beginning that determined whether or not your eyes would be green. It's outside of the sphere of your control. You can have brown hair and wish all day long that you were a blonde and you can never be a blonde. Now, don't listen to this with defiance, ladies. I know you can you can go to the hairdresser and you can get your hair dyed blonde, but eventually the roots will come out. The real you will surface. You have nothing to do to control that. That's a part of what happens in the womb of your mother. When the sperm cell and the egg come together and when a child is conceived, it's within the genetic code what hair color you're going to have. And you don't predetermine that. Now, you do determine the length of your hair or the way you style it. So there is a certain input from you as well as a certain input from God. It's a marriage between the two. Now, this whole doctrine of divine election can be a very hard thing for the human mind to wrap around. Just like the doctrine of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet these three are one God. Yet they are interrelated. They are not one and the same, and yet they are one and the same. The doctrine of the Godhead is impossible to understand unless you have divine revelation, and the doctrine of divine election is impossible to understand unless you have divine revelation. And it was something that bothered me immensely in the beginning of my walk with God. I got around some people that believed in a very strong Calvinistic view and noticed that they had very little burden for people on the mission field because the mindset, the attitude was, well, if, if God elects to bring them into the kingdom, he'll manifest himself to them whether or not we go to foreign fields and preach in the far outreaches of some jungle area. It doesn't really matter because it's all in God's hands. Well, I didn't care for that because the scripture said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature and whoever believes on him shall be saved. That seems to put the responsibility on human beings. And so I prayed. I sought God. I knew there had to be a divine answer. And I was out in the woods one day in Zion, Illinois, and I was seeking God passionately about an answer to this particular doctrinal issue. Which is right, Lord? Is Calvinism right or is Arminianism right? And all of a sudden, as I was reading my pocket New Testament, a certain passage blew up in front of me like it was under a magnifying glass, and I knew it was an answer from God. It's John chapter 6, verses 37 through 40. Listen to it. I'll read all four verses, and then I'll explain. All that the Father gives me will come to me, 
and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. All of a sudden, God spoke to me concerning these words of Jesus. And he said, that includes two groups of people. And I went back and read it again and saw that the two groups of people were connected by a conjunction. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. In other words, there are some people who are foreordained to come to the Father who will do so definitely, and those who choose of their own free will to come will not be cast out. God elects to receive one group at his will and elects to receive the other group at their will. God elects to manifest himself to one group, whether they ask for it or not, And God elects to manifest himself to another group who come to him of their own free will. But all are among those who are elected and chosen by God. He chooses to reveal himself to one group. He chooses to accept the request of another group. Listen, he said, this is the will of the father who has sent me that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And... This is the will of him who sent me that everyone who sees the son and believes in him may have everlasting life and I will raise him up at the last day. So these two are fused together as one, just like Adam and Eve were fused together as one in the very beginning. Now this is confirmed by something very symbolic. When God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, The Bible said in Exodus chapter 12, verse 37 and 38, that a mixed multitude went up with them also. So God elected that the offspring of Abraham come out of the bondage of Egypt. Whether they wanted to or not, God manifested himself to them through his prophet Moses. And there was a mixed multitude of Gentiles who saw the blessings of God on the Jewish people, who recognized that Yahweh was the true God, who saw the value of a covenant relationship with him, and they chose to align themselves with Israel and were assimilated into that company who experienced the guidance of a fire by night and a cloud by day and were nourished by manna from heaven and sustained by water out of the rock. They were all beneficiaries of the same inheritance in the wilderness. God didn't differentiate between the two. They were all blessed. They all had their offspring go into the land of promise, and they were all in covenant with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. One group got elected to come out of Egypt at his will. The other group got elected to receive at their request. That's the way it works. But they were all among that elect nation called Israel. And as it was with Israel, so it is with the church. Now, I'm going to be going into some even deeper explanations on this title for God's people, the elect of God, 
in the next episode of Discover Your Spiritual Identity. Thank you for listening to Discover Your Spiritual Identity with Mike Shree, a podcast designed to cause a spiritual awakening in your life. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can go deeper into this amazing revelation of the names God has given His people by getting your copy of Mike Shreve's book titled, Who Am I? Dynamic Declarations of Who You Are in Christ. We also invite you to visit our website, shreveministries.org, and sign up to be part of our global internet family, a group of on-fire believers who are bold to proclaim, I am who God says I am, I have what God says I have, and I will be what God says I will be.